Thank you, Rick and Nancy. Joshua chapter 3, verse 1, the exact same passage of scripture that we read this morning. I'm going to do a follow-up, zero in on another detail. As you look in this passage of scripture, this chapter, uh, there's a lot that you can cover, more than you could cover in just one or two uh, services. We want to zero in on even just a part of a sentence and get our message from there this evening in Joshua chapter 3. We will read the entire episode of Crossing the Jordan, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand as the scriptures read, please? Joshua chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Acacia Grove and came to the Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they crossed over. So it was after three days that the officers went through the camp. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, and the priests and the Levites bearing it, you shall set out from your place and go after it. There shall be a space between you and it, about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you should go. For you have not passed this way before. Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then Joshua spoke to the priests, saying, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and cross over before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. And the Lord said to Joshua, This day I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. You shall command the priests to bear the Ark of the Covenant, saying, When you have come to the edge of the water of the Jordan, you will stand in the Jordan. Joshua said to the children of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore take for yourselves twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one man from every tribe. And it shall come to pass as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests who bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, that the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off, and the waters shall come down from upstream, they shall stand as a heap. So it was when the people set out from their camp to cross over the Jordan, with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as those who bore the ark came to the Jordan, and the feet of the priest who bore the ark dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks during the whole time of harvest, that the waters which came down from upstream stood still and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city which is beside Zaratan. So the waters that went down into the Sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea failed and were cut off, and the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Then the priest who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel passed over on dry ground until all the people had crossed completely over the Jordan. Let's pray together, please. Father, we thank you for a detailed account of your working among your people. We thank you for this story. We thank you for the truth of this story. And we ask that the lessons would find their home in our hearts unmistakably. And Father, you'd remind us of these things when we need them the most in the future. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
The Bible leaves no doubt that God was in complete and total control of the schedule and the route of the journey of the children of Israel. Just to establish that, if you want to turn back to Exodus chapter 40, Exodus chapter 40, some of the last verses in Exodus gives us a very detailed description of how they knew where to go and when to go. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of the meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not journey until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and the fire was over it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all of their journeys. Now, Exodus chapter 13, verse 20 through 22, this is the day, the very day they left Egypt. It says that the cloud led them by day, and it also led them by night, and they would follow the cloud. And the cloud would lift up, and when it moved, they moved. And so from the very start, up until, of course, the summary in the book of uh, Exodus, we realized throughout all of their journeys, God was in very much control of when they moved and where they moved. That is an important fact to consider. It was always God's schedule and God's roadmap. So, we zero in on something that was almost put in as kind of an afterthought. In fact, this statement is put in brackets, parentheses, and that is in verse 15. For the Jordan overflows all its banks during the time of harvest. When they came to the Jordan River, the Jordan River was flooded. So to human perspective, the combination of the timing and the place they crossed seems to be an unfortunate and inconvenient coincidence at best. That's just kind of how it goes. It was just a coincidence. What a rotten stroke of luck. They would come to the Jordan River at the worst possible time to cross anything. Now, at its worst, it looked like that God had bad timing that God made a mistake. And God put them crossing the river at the worst possible time, at the worst possible place. Why not another time? Not, why not further upstream? Why right here when the river was possibly a mile wide and the water was as swift as it would ever be? But let's realize, God was in complete control of their schedule. God was leading and directing every part of their journey, and mark it down, God makes no mistakes. They were there at that time for a reason. Number one, it left no doubt about the miraculous 
working of God. Now, with many of the miracles in the Bible, you'll always have these pundits that will want to come up with some natural way that this happened and the hand of God couldn't have been involved in it at all. We looked at that when we were talking about the crossing of the Red Sea. They wanted to explain away the manna and on and on and on, tried to explain away the miracles. And so it is, you have the most possible water going through this place at this time, and it says that the people pass through on dry ground, not soggy ground, not damp ground, not swampy ground, where maybe a wind kind of, kind of made the water a little shallow. It said they stood firm on dry ground. There is no possible exclamation except for the fact God did it. You cannot explain away the miracle. I suppose some people are very uncomfortable with miracles in the Bible because miracles mean that there is a God. God means there is authority. Authority makes humans very uncomfortable because humans do not want the answer to anyone so people like to try to explain away God. But as we mentioned this morning, God is the God of all the earth. For those who will try to explain him away, for those who will accept him full by faith, he's God to everyone. Some people have just fooled themselves. But he brought them to that place at that time, so there's no mistake, nothing but the hand of God did it. Secondly, it provided a much greater display of the power of God. So God brings them at the dry time of the year, upstream, where it dries up. People see that and they say, well, isn't that a good stroke of luck? They hit it at the drought. They hit it at the narrow place upstream. They hit it at the good crossing. Isn't that a good stroke of luck? It may, would make no impact on them. But now I want you to imagine for a little bit, we're looking at it from the perspective of the children of Israel. The Bible says they are across the stream from Jericho. Jericho is two miles from the Jordan River. Whether it is within sight of the Jordan River or not, we know there are people posted up. A little bit earlier, you know, spies went into Jericho and they spoke to one of the inhabitants of Jericho, Rahab. And Rahab said, you just have to know, the heart of these people are melted because of you. They remember what God did 40 years ago, and the city is, is shut up. They were in siege mentality because they knew that the children of Israel were over on the other side of the, the river. And so they saw them over there, and they were all closed up in Jericho, but they could take one bit of comfort. There's no way they cross that river. There's no way, there's no way they cross that river. They've got babies, toddlers, little children, women. There's no way they can cross. They didn't see any kind of apparatus, any kind of boats, any kind of anything for them to cross. There's absolutely no way they can cross. If they try some kind of crossing, they'll be at a disadvantage. We can wipe them out as they come ashore. No way they can do it. Imagine their perspective when they saw the priests come to the edge of the water. They didn't know what they were going to do. What are they doing? 
and as they stepped in the water, the water disappeared. Now, that's a big impact. Flood stage, the widest part of the river, and the river is dry. God wanted to send a message loud and clear to the inhabitants of the land. He is God over all the earth. He is God over all creation. He is God over the floodwaters. And he parted the waters. You see, it provided a greater display of the power of God because there was no other way, of course, that these things could have happened. And God took the very worst possible of human circumstances and worked anyway. And that's exactly what he has done over and over in the scriptures. Two instances that we'll look at just very briefly tonight that mirror what's going on here. A few hundred years later in 1 Kings chapter 18, you remember, God always lists the inhabitants of the land when he talked about the land to the point where it gets rather tedious. As we talked about the Gergesites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Canaanites, why did he do that all the time? Because every time he would say something to the point of, you need to make sure you don't mix it up with these people. And you need to make sure you don't go after their gods. A few hundred years later, what do the children of Israel do? They can't decide if God's really God. Or maybe these other gods, maybe there is some rational thinking here. And maybe there is some, some kind of truth to what they're saying about their gods. So they couldn't make up their mind whether God was God or whether their society offered other alternatives. Prophet Elijah comes on the scene. Verse 21 of 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And the people answered him, Not a word. That's a pretty sad commentary where nobody knew what to say when he said, Who's God today? And we're talking about these were the Hebrew people. They didn't know what to say when he said, take a stand and decide who God is. Verse 22, Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord. Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces, lay it on the wood, put no fire under it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire under it. You call on the name of your gods, I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Well, you know the story. You know the story that their people went, they called on the name of Baal and their gods, and they danced around, they, they screamed and they hollered, and they ran around, they did everything they could, and after they were exhausted, they called it a day. Now look in verse 30. Elijah said to the people, come near to me. Why did he do that? He said, all right, you come. I want you to see. No, no, no. You get a good front row seat, and you look this way. He said, I want you to be sure and see what's going on. Come near to me. All the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And he took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. 
With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two sihas of seed. He put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it twice. And then he said, Do it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. What are you doing, Elijah? You're going to call on God to burn an offering up and you're watering it down? You're making it as hard as possible? You're creating the worst possible scenario to pull off some sort of razzle-dazzle here. In human terms, it says, are you crazy? Are you nuts? He said, keep putting the water on there. Came to pass of the offering of the evening of sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel. I am your servant. I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and you have turned their, they have turned their backs to you again. And the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice, and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. What happened? The impact was greater because Elijah said, We're putting water on this where there's no possible doubt. God did it. One more instance. And Luke Chapter 1, verse 26. Luke, chapter 1, verse 26. Now, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin that's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. When she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, Consider what manner of greeting this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there shall be no end. We know the story, but look at the introductory remarks. The angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph. When God wanted to send his Messiah into the world, God chose the least esteemed region of the civilized world. The Roman Empire was in full control. There were highly cultured places up in Europe up in Rome, down in Alexandria, down in Egypt, over in the Far East, very highly esteemed civilizations. When a Roman soldier 
was sent to Palestine, he felt he was being sent to the ends of the earth. It was the most least esteemed region of the civilized world. The whole empire despised that region of the world. To the least esteemed country, Israel. To the least esteemed region, Galilee. To the least esteemed city, Nazareth. You remember when Nathaniel said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? There's a reason he said that. And then he sent them to a very humble working couple. They were not even part of the Chamber of Commerce of Nazareth. They were a very small part of the least esteemed city in the least esteemed region in the least esteemed country of the world. And they were a very humble family. Then, on the night he was born, Jesus Christ was born in a manger, a stable. As low as human estimation can get. Anything other than this, somebody could have pointed and said, well, he just rode a political wave. He just rode on his family's coattails. He was just part of the most powerful nation on earth, and you would expect a king to come from there. On and on and on. There was no cultural, civic, family, lineage, political reason why the king of all the earth would rise to the power that Jesus Christ is today, except for this, God did it. The right place, the right time to show that it was the hand of God. In fact, Micah said it this way in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He said, Thou Bethlehem, though you be little among the thousands of Judah, one will come out of you whose going forth has been of old, whose throne will be forever and ever. Even Micah said, the king of the world, the God of all the earth will come from right there. You see, God's timing and God's agenda and God's roadmap is always best, even though human estimation says God's made a mistake here. God just did it all wrong. God had his reasons. And God chooses lowly and unfortunate and inconvenient situations to do his most mighty work. And so we realize God can do a work in our life with whatever situation we have. Is there anything before we close? Let's stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer.